Welcome back to the Rock Your Retirement Show. I'm your host, Kathy Klein, and today we're talking about why so many baby boomers are moving to Mexico. Years ago, Les and I had talked about moving out of the country to retire. We weren't really that serious about it, but honestly, it was a consideration. Since we lived in San Diego at the time, Mexico was one of the options. However, at the time, there was a big uproar about drug violence, so we took Mexico off the table. But I do have friends who have either moved to Mexico or have a second home, and they love it there. If you've ever considered moving to another country, in particular Mexico, because you think that you'll be able to live more comfortably there on your savings or Social Security, you're probably right. But there are more reasons to move to Mexico than just money. Just like the Rock Your Retirement Show, it's about the lifestyle. In this episode, we'll talk to the author of The Fun Side of the Wall. Travis Luther actually started this project as his thesis for his master's degree. We'll talk about the project. He started with some theories, and some of them were true, but he also learned some surprising things about boomers and why they stayed. And I hope that you stay for this episode, too. But before we start, I wanted to tell you that if you're planning on visiting or moving to another country someday when this COVID-19 thing is over, it's super important that you protect yourself online. There are people out there who know a lot more about computers than we do. They know how to steal your passwords while you're using Wi-Fi or other internet. Protect yourself with a VPN. A VPN is different from malware or virus protection. VPNs hide the fact that you're online from prying eyes. To get the same VPN that Les and I use, go to rockyourretirement.com slash VPN. That's V like Victor, P like Paul, and N like Nancy. You'll get a great deal as plans start as low as a few dollars per month. You'll pay the lowest rate, and you'll be supporting the show. Okay, I won't make you wait any longer. Let's go ahead and bring on Travis Luther. Travis, welcome to the show. Hi, Kathy. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you. I read your book, and it was actually really fascinating. I learned a lot of things. Oh, thank you. I learned a lot of things writing it. Now, you started your thesis. How long ago was that? Probably 2007 is when I started. And the book published when? December of 2019. So there was lag between the the thesis and the book, right? Yeah, the you know, the thesis project that kind of initiated the the writing of the book was like I said started in 2007. I I completed that in 2000 2010. And then um, since that initial, you know, round of research and the publishing of my thesis, I got a lot of inquiries about the the subject matter. And so it was over the last couple of years that I decided to dust that thesis off, update uh, some of the the research that was in there and start a whole new round of research um, interviewing people all over Mexico, not just the not just the small community I originally found for the thesis. That's great. And you found some things out that you weren't that you weren't really expecting, didn't you? 
I did. Yeah. You know, in 2007 through, you know, 2009, we were going through that global financial crisis, you know, on the housing crisis and the bailouts and all of that stuff. And it was during that time that I had found this small um, group of expats down in Mexico. Um, and what I was most curious about was why anyone would want to leave the United States. You know, right. Uh, held up as the greatest country on earth with the best of everything. And so I was very curious why this uh, group of people uh, had left. You know, my own gut inclination was that, you know, people who were struggling financially in the United States would would choose Mexico as a way to uh, either retire comfortably or stretch their retirement dollars. And so that was kind of the hypothesis uh, I went to explore. Do low-income people retire in Mexico because they don't have enough money to retire in the United States? I couldn't think of any other reason why why people would want to leave the United States. And, and actually what I found was quite to the contrary. Well, you know, I always thought that too. And I don't know if you know this, but I'm a basically a retired financial advisor. Mm-hmm. And I had talked with some of my clients about moving to Mexico. You know, you need to move to Mexico. You don't have enough money to stay. And most of the people that I actually encouraged to move to Mexico did not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, I will talk about why they might not have a little bit later, but remind me to bring that up because that was surprising to me, the reason why low-income people did not move to Mexico. But yeah, I was I was surprised to learn that most of the people who, that that you talked to, that you interviewed, actually had some means. Yeah, I, I wouldn't just say some, but I'd say a lot of means. You know, compared to their counterparts in the United States, what I what I found out is that the person most likely to move and retire in Mexico is actually a high uh, income earner, upper upper uh, middle class, if not upper class. Uh, and also highly educated, most of them having college degrees and a significant portion of them having uh, post-bachelor and doctorate degrees. So um, it was not people struggling financially who were moving to Mexico, but rather it was people who thought more about their money who moved to Mexico and people who wanted to retire earlier. And in fact, of the baby boomers that are retired in Mexico, on average, they retire five years uh, sooner than their U.S. counterparts. I know. Isn't that amazing? Mm-hmm. You know, and you would think, um, you know, I've interviewed a lot of people on this show. And one of the things, one of the reasons why Les and I did not move was he was concerned about the medical. Mm-hmm. And you did address that in the book. And mm-hmm. since then, I have talked to many people who they live here in the mm-hmm. United States, but they go to other countries, including Mexico, to have medical procedures. And I was just talking with somebody the other day. She is another Medicare insurance agent, and she was asking me what dental insurance I recommended for people who needed dental implants. And I said, well, actually, I don't. They should go to Mexico and get them done. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Yeah. You know, I I think that the medical is um, one of the major concerns that I see a lot. You know, I still continue to monitor uh, expats in Mexico. and, and, And most interestingly, I monitor groups here in the United States who are trying to get information about moving to Mexico. And medical is probably number two as far as questions go, safety being number one. But but on the medical side, I did look into that. And I think I addressed it pretty thoroughly in the book. And, you know, what I discovered is there are a number of routes to enroll in in Mexico's um, 
public health care system. You know, you can either do it through work, and if you're not working, you can do it through um, residency, which is actually very easy to acquire um, versus other countries. Um, and a lot of the folks down there reported that their their copays in some instances were still more expensive than full treatment in Mexico. Um, they felt like they were receiving comparable care. Um, they weren't they weren't worried. I think if they complained, the little thing that they complained about was that you know the wait for a more non-emergency standard appointment is a little bit longer than it, than it is in the United States. But there was definitely no no question of of care. Going back to you know Medicaid and Medicare, one thing I discovered is that those treatments that are paid through Medicaid or Medicare are not covered, uh, and not just in Mexico, but but usually anywhere out of the country, unless it's some kind of um, uh, very interesting and unusual circumstance. And so, in that case, you know, folks who were dependent on Medicaid or Medicare for prescriptions or things of that nature would just make periodic, you know, whether they were every three months or every six month uh, return trips to the United States, you know, load up on their prescriptions or, or have, have their, their procedure done and then, and then go back down to Mexico. So I would like to just jump in here. My legal hot hat is, uh, is starting to, to tingle. Mm -hmm. Nothing that we say on this show should be construed as legal advice, Medicare advice, and so forth. It, for your personal situation, you need to talk with a uh, you know somebody who knows your full situation. But I do want to say that if you are going to be using your Medicare benefits, you have to maintain a U.S. resident. You have to you know you you cannot go in and use a drug plan if you don't technically live in the United States. So I'm going to let you use your imagination on that one. I'm not going to tell you what to do, but you do have to have a U.S residents to use a prescription drug plan. So, um, so yeah. I think that, that gets a little bit to the point of what you were talking about earlier and, and when you were saying, you know, to remind you of some advice you'd given to clients and stuff, but this, this idea that you would find low income people in Mexico because they can't afford to the United the, to retire in the United States, you know, the, the issue with that, the reason that that ends up not being the case is this very thing that we're talking about is that these low income people tend to be dependent on Medicare and Medicaid for, for their health, uh, you know, health benefits and for their, for their treatment. And as you get older, you know, those, those treatments, unfortunately become more and more frequent. And I think that that in itself becomes a hurdle to being able to, to go down to Mexico and take advantage of the low cost of living and everything else that we found down there. You know, I always kind of considered maybe moving to Mexico or another Latin country. I'm very, I'm in love with the Latin people. Not forever. You know, like I personally, I wouldn't necessarily want to live there when I'm in my 80s and 90s, because at my age, it would be very difficult to learn how to speak the language. And if I needed long-term care, uh, you know, I need to be able to communicate with my caregiver. But to live there for 10 years, you know, maybe in my 60s, um, live that really relaxed lifestyle, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute, and just sort of change my brain, change the way I think, and frankly, save all that money. And then come back to the United States when I'm older and use my long-term care benefits here where people, everybody speaks English. Because as you know, 
uh, Mexicans that are not on the border don't necessarily speak English. And it's it's up to us to learn their language, regardless of what country we decide to move to. It's It's not up to them to learn our language. It's up to us to learn their language. But it can be difficult when you're in your 50s, 60s, and 70s to learn a, a new language. Yeah, I found actually that the baby boomers who had moved down there had really dove into to language especially. And at times, uh, you know, I've been working on my Spanish a bit too, but at times I had to be relying on them to get around, especially with regard to directions and getting taxis and stuff. But, you know, in a lot of these communities that I visited in Mexico, there is no shortage of one expats who are happy to help you kind of navigate the language barriers and two English speaking Mexicans who have lived in these communities themselves for generations and, and speak English as well as they speak Spanish, you know, certainly in places like, um, you know, San Miguel de Allende, Puerto Vallarta, uh, Lake Chapala, you know, it, it, it's really not hard to get around. And I don't think anyone should be fearful of the, the language barrier as getting in the way of their Mexican retirement. Did you ever watch Star Trek when you were younger? <laughs> I, I I did. I, I can't claim to be a super fan, but I, I understand that. Okay. Do you remember the Universal Translator? Yes. Okay. We have that now. It's called Google Translate. <laughs> you know? And we did not have that 10 years ago. So yeah. it is getting easier to be uh, globally mobile now. Oh, yeah. I would recommend that, too. You know, I was just down in Mexico a couple months ago, and, and I was showing that to my friends. And you can actually, there's augmented reality. You can put it over a menu, and it will translate even the menu for you. It, it's wild. You're it kidding. Wild. I haven't I haven't seen that part of it yet. Yeah, I use the Google Translate camera feature. Yeah. In fact, we were using it the other day to look at boxes of, um, of uh, medical masks that had come in from China, and we were trying to translate you know, what kind of masks they were. And we put Google Translate, the camera up there on there. And it, it's just crazy. It totally changes the the words and the text so you can read what's on a label. Oh, my gosh. I am so going to have to do that. But I don't want to use it in a restaurant in China because there are <laughs> things in China I really don't want to know what they are. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Use your discretion. Yeah. That's right. But that's amazing. Yeah. I used to actually use Google Translate when I lived in San Diego. I had some neighbors down the street that were from uh, Japan or no, they were from China mm -hmm. and they only spoke. I don't remember if it was Cantonese or Mandarin, but we used Google Translate to communicate with them almost every day when we mm -hmm. would see them. And it was they went to our they came to our house. We went to their house and it was it was pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. But I'll definitely have to try that with the menus now next time I, I go somewhere and I don't know where it is. So you're pretty young. Have you thought about retiring in Mexico? Oh, yeah. I think about it all the time. You know, and I, and, and now that, that, that we have this temporary travel ban, uh, you know, I'm even more itchy to, to get <laughs> back there. But, you know, I've got a couple young kids and um, they've got a few more years of school. And then, um, you know, once they're through school, then um, I'll be going down to Mexico on a more permanent basis. Well, you know, I have a friend. He's been on the show. His name is Chad Carson. And he actually went to Ecuador for two years. He and his wife did and lived and worked there. He he um, owns real estate and that's how he makes his living. Uh -huh. And he, they did that so that their children could learn Spanish like a native. 
Yeah, and that's you know that's kind of my my goal too. Uh, you know, if school continues to be online as it has been this spring, if it continues to be there on the fall, we've already talked about going down there and doing you know six months, uh, just renting a house down there and doing six months and let the kids get immersed. The, the irony of this is my wife is actually Cuban and her mother's first language was Spanish, but she came grew up in that generation where they they didn't want to teach their kids Spanish. They wanted them to assimilate as much as possible. And so while my mother-in-law speaks Spanish, my wife speaks none. And I've got these half Spanish kids who don't really speak any either. And me as the uh, the sole Caucasian in the family, I speak the most Spanish. So it's kind of funny, but I, I do want to get the down there for that very reason, get them immersed while they're still young and and get them comfortable learning and loving the language. That would be awesome. You know, my mother's second husband was Mexican. So I have a half brother who speaks perfect English and perfect Spanish. And I'm jealous. Uh I remember when he was growing up, uh, when he was little, learning, learning language, like two, three years old. And when you're in a bilingual household, because my, uh, my side of the family did not speak any English or any Spanish. And Jose's side of the family, my stepfather, didn't speak any English. And that's why he learned, that's why my brother Rick learned perfect Spanish and perfect English, neither with an accent. Sometimes when you're in a bilingual home, the children will learn the languages with an accent. But... um but he was lucky in that respect, but he would mix up his words. So he'd say, can I have a glass of agua? Or, you know, you know, it's just totally natural to him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just, I bet it's him well. Absolutely. So what were the things that I want to make sure that we get this out, the non-financial aspects. But before we do that, what was the average age of people that moved there? Was it in their 50s, 60s, 70s? Yeah. So I'll just pull up uh, my 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 figures here so I can speak accurately. So there's there, there's a phenomenon that's happened. When I first went down in 2007 or 2008 and started this study, um, the folks that had ended up in Mexico usually had some kind of personal relationship with a friend down there or a family member. So you were much more likely to move down to Mexico if you had some kind of social tie that already existed. If, if we fast forward to when I picked the research back up again two years ago, so with almost, you know, a 10 or 12, 10, at least 10 years separating the first two studies, what I found is that there were you were more likely to find people who had moved down to Mexico on their own without knowing a single person who was down there. And so, you know, I contribute that to the the growth of the Internet and social networks and our ability to, to form meaningful relationships online and just kind of explore a place. So what you have is you have kind of a spike. You have uh, as of late, the average age of a person down there who's retired is about 57 Oh, okay. And previous to to that, they were about 65. So wow. you kind of this more traditional wave about a decade ago. And now what you have is a younger group of baby boomers who are who are a little more adventurous, <laughs> a little more willing to show up down there by themselves and who are using Mexico not only to save money in retirement, but like I said, to retire earlier. Have you heard of the FIRE movement? The what movement? FIRE. FIRE. It's- it stands for Financially Independent Retire Early. Oh, okay. And it's a small but growing movement, mostly of, I would say, millennials. Mm-hmm. And they sock away 30, 40, 50, 60 percent of their income so that they can retire in 10 years. Yeah. And I'm just wondering if that's going to be the next study. Um, I, I haven't heard of a lot of them moving to Mexico. They They tend to move to other places. Um, but I would say that that's probably next. 
Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we kind of, we, we, we refer to, and, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, like I said, and I have been for many years, and we, we kind of refer to these folks as digital nomads, you yes. know, people who have found a way to earn either passive income or earn income online. And yeah, they're, you know, they're traveling all over the world and working from all over the world. And, you know, truth be told, that was kind of one of my original motivations on the study was I was a younger entrepreneur myself having relationships with folks all over the world. And again, asking myself, well, if the United States has the best of everything, why are people leaving? And that's what I was really curious about, you know, and, 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 and kind of stumbling on baby boomers was almost an accident. It was, you know, it was, I started looking for expat enclaves that were close to the United States that I could access, study and ask these questions of. And, and, and it was the baby boomers that I found in Mexico. So really my, my, uh, an original interest was more along the lines of what you're talking about. These fire folks are these digital, digital nomads. Interesting. Okay. So we talked about, you know, the financial benefits. You can retire in your fifties instead of your sixties, seventies, you know, some people work until their seventies now because they well into their seventies because they didn't save enough money. But you also in the book talked about some of the other benefits. Do you want to touch on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, my big aha moment was that I did not find a bunch of low income um, baby boomers who, who had to rely on Mexico because they couldn't afford to retire. They couldn't afford, afford health care in the United States. As I said before, I found very educated, very affluent baby boomers down there. But while they said that money was the thing that initially attracted them or got them interested in looking at, 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 at retiring overseas or out of the country, it was really this authentic community that they found in, in Mexico. And it wasn't just strictly an authentic community of baby boomer expats. It was this combination of Mexican culture and Mexican, the, the Mexican appreciation and respect for elders that still exist that they didn't feel like they had in the United States. It was this culture of consumerism that had overtook them or overwhelmed them in the United States that they really needed a break for. You know, a lot of them talked about not feeling like magazines were geared towards their generation anymore, that advertising was. They didn't see people in movies or on TV who looked like they did. You know, that the United States had become overwhelmed with this youth and consumer culture, and they just didn't feel like that existed to that degree in Mexico. You know, I did say a little bit that, you know, if, if you go to a place and you don't understand the language and, and the customs, you may be oblivious to it. It might be there, but even if you're oblivious to it, it still felt real and authentic to them. And so even though money caused them to explore Mexico, it was really this discovery of this, this rich cultural history, this feeling as if they were connected to something that was more important than consumerism, and that they could have these authentic relationships with both expats who've kind of shared their own value system, as well as a Mexican culture that shared their value system. So they felt really at home there. The, the thing that they wanted most for themselves or that they continue to want for themselves is to not have their retirement dictated to them. They, they, you know, in the United States, retirement has really become commodified. And there's this idea that you retire, you move into some kind of structured living facility where your days are planned out with different activities. You live with people who are all your same age, same income level, and then you move from there to assisted living or retirement. And then hopefully you have a heart attack in your sleep and you die. <laughs> you know? And, and, and that's not what these folks wanted. They want, they still wanted some kind of adventure. They still wanted some kind of real community. They wanted to dictate the terms of their 
retirement. And so, you know, and what they found is in Mexico was a place where, where they could connect with people, build something important. You know, a lot of them are doing community service projects, environment projects, working with kids, working in literacy. They've just found a place where they're dictating the terms of their retirement and they don't feel like they're being bombarded by this commodified consumerism of retirement in the United States. And there is no translation for OK Boomer. And there is. I would think that the people who, you know, everybody, like you said, most people come because of the, the money, but people stay for the community. And I would, I would think that the, because I do know people wash out. I do know that people go, they don't like it. They go home because I have talked to some people who have moved overseas and either they or their spouse. I mean, it does cause divorce too. When one person really loves it, the other person doesn't. But I would, yeah, I would think that the people who wash out just really never could assimilate, could never didn't didn't get into the culture part, wanted their things, didn't like the fact that you can't get Amazon delivered the next day. Um, did you talk to anybody who washed out? I know you did not address this on the in the book, so I'm kind of putting you on the spot here. <laughs> yeah, and I you know I put that as one of the limitations in the back of the book. You know there you know there were certainly some limitations as to who I had access to and who I interviewed, and people who did not stay in Mexico, I did not have access to or interview, but. But I I do caution that I agree that it's not for everybody. And I think the point of one of the main points of the book was to say these are the types of people who go to Mexico who have a successful transition and who love it. So if you are, you know, upper income, uh, educated, adventurous Caucasian who likes a leisurely lifestyle, um, a low cost of living, enjoys uh, authentic, you know, community relations. You know, uh, I, I even surveyed on the political side, you know, who generally tends to be liberal, who generally tends to be a Democrat, uh, who tends to be kind of open to other cultures and adventures, then you are going to be successful in Mexico. You know, it's a sociological study of of who it is that finds Mexico attractive and why they do. And so if, you, if you're reading this book and you kind of find yourself not a lot of those things, then I think you can, can assume that you may not be successful, if not in Mexico, probably not in a lot of uh, <laughs> Latin. Yeah. Right. So, so listener, if you know what it means to be a Karen, you're probably not going to be happy in Mexico if you are the slang version of a Karen. And if you don't know what that is, look it up on Wikipedia. <laughs> and, 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 you know, the, and I think that the reason for that is, you know, some of these expat enclaves are very concentrated, you know, in, in Lake Chapala, there's, a, you know, at least 20,000 people there. Um, and you get out of your car there and you walk around and you kind of feel like you're in Kansas, you know, right. like you see a lot of familiar faces. Um, San Miguel de Allende, same thing, twelve to 15,000 expats really concentrated. And, and so I think what they recognize is they have to be respectful to the culture that has welcomed them and allowed them there. And if you have too many American expats who are complaining and asking for the manager, as Karen does every time, <laughs> you know, the wrong dressing on her salad, well, then you're going to lose that chance to be part of that authentic community because you're going to ruin it for the people who are hosting you. You know, and you have to really keep that in mind. Right, right, absolutely. You know, the I I loved reading your book. It was it was an easy read. 
You know, it was something that I was somewhat familiar with just because of the research that we had done and all of the people that I've spoken to um, on this show. Have you looked at other places other than Mexico, other Latin countries, or, you know, when you were doing your own research as far as being a digital nomad before or after you did the thesis? Um. I, you know, have I looked at other places to do research on or, or to live, you know? Yeah. So, um, you know, I've traveled quite a bit through Latin and South America and, um, you know, I can tell you that certain areas kind of, um, get pumped up and popular and then they kind of drop off. And I think what happens as, as places get more popular is that the, the cost, the housing costs and stuff like that skyrocket too, you know? So I kind of saw, Mexico is kind of the first of those Latin American dominoes to fall, if you will. And then Costa Rica became the next one. And there are a lot of expats there. And then Panama had became the next one. And I went and visited there as well. You know, I'm kind of interested in Colombia now, you know, personally, because that seems to be kind of the new emerging, um, both affordable, beautiful and technologically uh, adequate uh, country, if you will, as far as Latin America goes. Um, so, you know, I know that a lot of people looked at those places before deciding on Mexico. And I know that Belize has been another popular destination. Because it's experience. English speaking and they don't have to learn a new language. Yeah. But you know what? A lot of the people that ended up in Mexico just did not feel like Belize had the infrastructure and the technology to kind of support their lifestyle, even though they wanted to assimilate in something Latin American. They just kind of felt that was... Uh, to put kindly too rustic, if you right. will. So, <laughs> um, but, you know, one what, of what the things I was surprised about myself in my first visit to Mexico was how, you know, modern it can be. You know, it just, it doesn't feel like, and you know, and some people think it's a third world country or second world country, but it just doesn't feel like that. You know, I've been to, I've been to India. <laughs> that, is, you know, that has some real challenges. That is not Mexico. And I don't think people should should be afraid of this idea of, of second world or third world. I just I, I just think they're going to be just as surprised as I was about how modern it is, comfortable it is. Right. When you're in Mexico and you and you ask somebody to put in a um, an island in your in your kitchen, they know what that is. They're, yes. they're not going to put a big concrete thing that doesn't have any cabinets, which, which my husband actually knew somebody that, uh, I heard this story. I don't remember who it was, but they built something overseas somewhere and they showed them what they wanted. And it, it turned out to be a big concrete block that you, you, you had no storage because it was made out of concrete. So it didn't turn out the way they wanted. <laughs> but, um, would you, would you say that the the cultures are different in different Latin countries or are they pretty similar because they're, they're all Latin? Yeah, I, you know, I, they're, they're definitely different. Um, but the, you know, I don't have a sophisticated grasp of how they're different, you know? Um, you know, one thing is, people's reaction to government or people's expectations for government, I think are very different. You know, I've been to Chile, which was, you know, run by a murderous dictator for a long time. And what that kind of turned into was, you know, I think Chile is one of the, the most democratic countries in South America. I think it has one of the highest voter turnouts in mm -hmm. South America. And I think that people really expect a lot more 
um, from from their their relatively newfound freedom. And then you know you contrast that to Mexico, where um, you've had a pretty similar government in place for a really long time, and there's been a hundred plus years of kind of leveled expectations and what can the people expect from their government. You know that coupled with with the the drug cartel violence that you know is very much alive and. Um, and that kind of changes people's expectations about, you know, what they're going to be able to do and accomplish with government. And that's kind of one of the things that I would also caution people. I, I remember someone talking about a story about one of the towns I was in, and, and, and I'll summarize it very briefly, but, you know, something about wanting to put in a stop sign or a stoplight. And it never you know, it's kind of, you know, that was kind of perceived as this American intrusion on their kind of way of of life and also this idea that you think you can come down here and like talk to our Change. government, get them to do anything. Yeah. You know, so, <laughs> so, so you have to be very kind of careful about, about that too, and kind of knowing your place. Um, but yeah, I would say that they're definitely, you know, different. I think Panama is kind of a place that's in hyper growth mode and, you know, really, really open and, uh, to Western ideas and, and, and Western money and, and Western ways of doing things. And I don't think that that's quite the case in Costa Rica, you know, so that they are different for sure. In Mexico, do they have some of the benefits that they have for older people that they would have in, say, Ecuador and some of the other countries, you know, where if you're over a certain age, you get a discount to ride the bus, you get a discount, to, you get to go to the front of the line. If there's a line, you get to cut the line. Um, I forget what they call those benefits, but yeah, I, I, I think there are. Yeah. I, obviously I wasn't, they weren't offered to me, but <laughs> I was just but, wondering if anybody talked about that when you were interviewing yeah. them. Yeah. Nothing really in depth, but I have a side comments and side talk heard that there are programs like that in Mexico too. What, since we were just talking about the cartel, Mm -hmm. And I know that things have died down a little bit, but I do know the drug cartel obviously still exists. Mm -hmm. um, what were some of the things that the Americans living in Mexico said about that? Because that is probably one of the, the biggest roadblocks that people have that I've spoken to in addition to medical care and things like and speaking the language of not wanting to move to a Latin country is, is because of the the drug cartels. Yeah. And that's the number one question that people ask me when they find out about my book or my research as well as it's safe to live there, or they just simply say, well, I would never do that. It's not safe. Um, you know, I, I would, I would tell you that Mexico can be a very dangerous place for in certain places and for certain people, the, the drug violence, there, um, I, I think that this year I read just recently within the last week or so that their their murder rate to date, year to date, is the highest that it's been in ten years, and that yeah. they, that's largely contributed to the fact that about sixty five percent of the army that had normally been been in those areas to help control that has been reallocated to the cities to help control COVID and to to enforce quarantine and things of that nature. So that's kind of that's opened up some fighting in those drug areas. But I, what I tried to show in the book is that as far as being a, a U.S. citizen or an expat or a retiree in Mexico, you are not the target of this violence. And when these, when unfortunately U.S. citizens are killed as, you know, in the crossfire as part of it, you hear about every single one. And I think you hear about it because it's actually so unusual. It's not because it happens all the time. And I, and I tried to run some statistical analysis to show you that in the book that you were more likely to be 
shot on the street in Chicago or Washington, D.C., than you were to be shot as an American expat in Mexico, and that you were way more, I don't know if it was 27 times or 30 times, but you were way more likely to die in a car accident or a motorcycle accident in Mexico than you were to die because due, due to violence or murder. So yes, Mexico is dangerous in certain areas for certain populations, but it's not any more dangerous for U.S. citizens than it is in the United States. And in fact, most of my respondents said they felt safer in Mexico than they did in the United States. Or actually, I'm sorry, about a third said they felt safer in Mexico than in the United States. And another third said it was about the same. Um, or it was even less than that. But it was just a very small percentage that, that felt like it was any more dangerous than it was in the United States. Do you know if most of that violence happens at night or does it happen during the day as well? You know, but, that I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I really don't. I mean, anywhere you go. I mean, I went to Ireland and there's a warning, you know, don't right. walk by yourself. Right. And you know, go with a partner. So, I mean, it's, it's almost impossible to not be warned to, to, to play it safe no matter um, where you go. But I, I just want to tell people that the, the folks that are in Mexico do not feel the threat of violence as you as it is portrayed back in the United States. They, they're just not uncomfortable with it. That's good. You know, the first time I went to New York with my sister and my niece, my sister was, she was scared to go to New York. She was like, oh, so many things happen in New York on the subway. Are you sure you want? And I remember saying, we're going to take the subway. Are you sure you want to take the subway? So many, and I'm like, I was just rolling my eyes at her because the subway in New York is so easy for me to get around. (laughs) I had no problem. But yes, there's violence everywhere, no matter no matter where you go. So we are coming up to the end of our interview. I wanted to make sure that, is there a place for people to buy your book or to contact you if they wanted to, you know, keep in touch? Yeah, you can, you can buy The Fun Side of the Wall on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. So feel free to search there or by my name, Travis Luther. I think the easiest way to contact me or to find information on the book is just go to travisluther.com and you should find everything you need right there. Awesome. Thank you so much for writing this book. It was a great read. I do recommend it. I'll have a link to it in the show notes. And um, thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Catherine. I appreciate it. Thanks. And to the listener, we'll see you next time on the Rock Your Retirement Show. Bye. Oh, wait. I wanted to thank you again for listening to the Rock Your Retirement Show. If you're a new listener, A good place to start is episode 116. This explains the six pillars of retirement lifestyle and our general philosophy. Episodes 1 through 236 can be thought of as an encyclopedia. These are topics that may or may not be interesting to you. You can listen to the ones that you're interested in and forget the rest until the issue becomes an issue for you. And that's okay. I actually don't recommend starting with episode one and working through until the most recent. That's actually not how the show was designed. Of course, if you want to do that so you can see how the show changed over time, you're welcome to. Now, starting in August 
actually August 31st of 2020, we changed the format of the show. The monthly episodes starting with 237 follow a real retiree from her pre-announcement through her first year of retirement. There might be bonus episodes, but we're committed to monthly. If you've enjoyed any of our past shows or the show that you've just listened to and you want to support us, you can do so in any of the four ways. One, share this episode with a friend or family member who needs to hear it. This is the most important way that people find us. Since our audience is typically older, we grow by having our listeners share our episodes with others. Two, subscribe to or follow the show using whatever podcast catcher you're listening on right now. Now, if you're listening on your computer, you can listen on your smartphone by going to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, iHeartRadio, Spotify. I mean, I believe on all of them. If you can't find us on the podcast catcher that you'd like to use, send us a note on the website at rockyourretirement.com and we'll make sure that we get on your favorite podcast app. But basically, what you do is you download the app and then you search for the show and when you find it, you'll hit subscribe. Make sure it's the Rock Your Retirement Show and that you hear my voice when you listen. Um, actually, there were some episodes where Henry Shapiro was a guest. Uh, we, we actually downloaded some of his episodes. So if you hear him, it's probably still the, the same show. There were maybe 34 or 35 episodes back in the beginning that we hosted on our show. Uh, when he decided to leave podcasting. Number three, how you can support us is by leaving a review. Whatever podcast app you're listening to normally has the option of leaving a review, either a written review saying how great the show is or just with stars. Five stars is typically the best. And of course, we're shooting for those five-star reviews. And if you tell us why you like the show, what you liked about it, it's actually easier for other people to understand what the show's about. A lot of people, when they find our show, they think it's about money. And of course, by now, you know that it's not. Number four, if you'd like to support us financially, of course, we're always appreciative of that. Just go to rockyourretirement.com support and it will take you to our page where you can support us financially. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on Rock Your Retirement. Bye.